Hi there, I'm David Nesbitt, Content Marketing Manager at Incognia. Thanks for joining us once again on the Trust and Safety Mavericks podcast. On this episode of the show, Incognia's Chief Revenue Officer, John Lindner, talks with Anand Bajoria, Product Director at Varro Bank, and Ronald Prage, co-founder of About Fraud. This episode was originally a webinar hosted by About Fraud. Their conversation focuses on how financial institutions can fight account takeovers using the next generation of device recognition technology. In the show, they discuss topics like the current ATO landscape for financial institutions, the tricky balance between ATO defense and keeping customers happy with low friction experiences, and how using location behavior as a signal can add security without adding disruption for customers. Let's get started. Hi everybody, my name is Ronald. I'm the co-founder of About Fraud, and I'm the host of this webinar today. Today we talk about ATOs, especially in the financial services space. We know that a lot of customers from financial services are under attack and the number of attacks are growing every day. And on the other side, we know that many companies have the goal of being frictionless, they want to provide a good customer experience. Uh, they really have the kind of balancing act between having a good experience, but also being secure. And that's going to be the topic of today and how we're going to help finance services with better device recognition, device fingerprint, location data. So we're going to find an interesting mix today, how we can help companies to really protect and fight against ATOs. But again, we need to have good people. And today we have John and Ant joining us. We actually have been around for a long time in the industry and have a great background to really give insights, give stories, challenging this topic and hopefully providing a good perspective for the audience. So Anand, the stage is yours to give an, an update on insight or perspective. Who are you? What have you done so far? Thank you so much, Ronald. Hi, everyone. This is Anand here. Uh, I have been in the fintech space for a long, long time. Currently, I work at Varo Bank, and I had the opportunity to develop uh, world-class fraud platforms and solutions that actually enabled trust and health of our customers. Prior to that, I played. Uh, I was with Western Union, and I played various different leadership roles. I worked very, very closely with the identity and fraud prevention space uh, across the globe uh, in Europe, North America, South America, and Asia. Uh, really, really a global and a unique opportunity. Uh, just to add a small disclaimer here, uh, just to ensure I have a job after this call, I am here to present my own thoughts that I've learned over the years, gathered along with my body fat <laughs> over the years. And I am not in any official capacity uh, from, my, from the Varo Bank. John, your turn. Hi, everybody. My name's John Lindner, and I'm the Chief Revenue Officer at a company called Incognia, headquartered in San Jose, California. I've been with Incognia now for over three years, but I've been in the digital identity and fraud risk management industry for over 10 years. Prior to Incognia, I was with an email authentication company where we help customers protect their users from email impersonation scams. 
And before that, I led North American sales at a company called Threat Metrics for over five years through the acquisition of a company called Nexus Risk Solutions. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've done about at least 10 startups. So uh, excited to have this conversation with you all today. Perfect. So now everybody knows who's the panel for today. And you can see we have some great experts, which hopefully can share a lot of good insights and perspective with all the experience that you have. We have here a short outline about uh, what are we going to talk about. Again, we talk about ATO. We talk about what customers expect nowadays, as already mentioned in the beginning, but, but also trying to understand, again, a lot of companies know device fingerprint is important, device recognition, there are some good and bad points, some challenges, and actually what's the next level? And uh, so that's the agenda for today. Let's kick it off to really understand what is ATO and how big is the problem? Maybe that's a good point for, for John to kick this off, like to build a foundation. Is this really a big issue for financial services or what's all about ATOs? Yeah, uh, I'm sharing in this slide some statistics that are pretty revealing. Account takeovers are still a very significant problem for financial services companies. More than 20% of us in the U.S. have been victims of account takeovers, which is when somebody is able to get your credentials and log in, if you will, to your account. It doesn't just happen in financial services, although because financial services is where most of the money is, it's still a very big target. So 30 over 30%, 32% of account takeovers target your bank account to this day. And about 15% of login attempts based on uh, statistics gathered across the web are ATO attempts. Some of these are automated, some of these are manual, but as you can see here, it's a very big vector as uh, someone just commented on the webinar that it's their biggest loss vector. So it's an area where, where banks and other FIs are constantly looking to shore up their defenses. But to your point earlier, Ronald, not introduce so much friction that it's, uh, it's an unpleasant experience. Give you a little bit more background on, on the landscape of ATOs. The average loss from an account takeover for, uh, of a financial account is $12,000. So it's, it's very material. As you can imagine, once as a, fr a fraudster gets into your account, your financial services account, they have access to very sensitive data like identity data. You may have a stored email address there, phone numbers, other information. So that creates a whole nother suite of problems. Fraudsters are very patient people. They play the long game sometimes. So they might use that identity data down the line to build up a portfolio on your profile and use it for other purposes, like open new accounts at a bank, as an example. It's a very stressful process for anyone that's been through an account takeover. They can tell you that it's very unpleasant and very difficult to recover from. You have to prove to the institution that you, in fact, are the account holder because now someone else technically owns that. So it can be a very difficult period of time. It can take it and it can also take some time to get through it. As we talk to our customers, our financial institution customers, they're obviously concerned about reputational damage. People talk if these ATOs are happening at any kind of scale, it can go viral even in some cases where 
I can give you an example where at one point there was a, a ride sharing company that had uh, a huge account takeover issue, but people were talking online. They thought it was a breach because so many of their accounts had been taken over. Now, it was probably the result of a breach, but a breach somewhere else because there's no shortage of those. And typically that's what feeds these account takeovers, right? The fraudsters get these credentials, people reuse passwords and they come and they'll test those passwords and come back and do their damage. The other concern financial customers have is churn. Unlike, let's say, porting your healthcare records from one provider to another, which by the way, is extremely painful. Changing your bank is really easy. It's a click of a button. The barrier to entry is is very low. So if you're a victim or one of your customers is a victim of account takeover, there's a very high likelihood that that could create enough stress for them that they might want to move their money somewhere else. And then there's also just the cost for the bank or the credit union or the fintech of recovering. There's You have to restore the account. There's a lot of customer support, I'm sure. And I can speak uh, with a lot more authority about what is entailed in that process. But there's real internal costs in addition to some of these other damages that I've mentioned. I think the important point is, John, the 12K, which we talk about on top, most likely doesn't include all the points which we have below. So the, uh, at the end, the, the full impact of an ATO is potentially oh. much more than 12,000. 12, That's a good point. Anand, we talk about ATOs for years already, and uh, it looks like no one has really the, uh, the magic bullet to solve ATOs. So from your side, um, Anand, what do you think are the main challenges for financial institutions to really stop ATOs? Or what actually is really hard? I mean, why is no one stopping it? Or why is the number of attacks growing? I think maybe it's a good point for, from your side to give a bit perspective how you see the world. Yeah, I think over the years, what we have learned or what we have seen is some of the processes have really, really upped their game. Like, for example, social engineering scams is at another level today, right, than it was four or five years ago. And uh, where actually uh, the fraudsters reach out to customers pretending to be an FI. And they do it in such a way that uh, customers actually trust them. We find all the time customers actually giving away their credentials, their SMS, OTP, and things like that to the fraudsters, right? So that's a big challenge than phishing and promotional scams. Uh, I can give an example. Some time ago, uh, way long back, uh, I cannot disclose more details, but way long back, especially during the holiday seasons when companies run promotions, right, on certain uh, social channels, right? That is when uh, these fraudsters actually just mimic uh, the legitimate promotional campaigns that are going on. And they pretend, hey, you won a lottery or you won this campaign and uh, they try to steal the credentials, right? And we also see a lot of uh, frequent change in devices. So about every two and a half years, almost 50% of the population actually change their upgrade their devices. We also see increase in number of devices, like uh, almost three devices per user. Some cohorts have even seven plus. So any fraud solution or ATO solution that you want to bring has to ensure that the actual customer itself uh, has a very, very little participation. So they don't give away any credentials, they don't give away any OTP or any kind of other verification methods. 
So it, we have to just exclude the customer itself, right? So the customer has very, very minimal participation. And uh, some of the things that we see fraudsters actually do after they are successfully taken over an account, first thing they do is they they try to drain their account. This is about 70, 80% of the cases, right? We also see a lot of money laundering and mulling that they have. And uh, once they get over and they've drained the account, they try to uh, further fraud by reaching out to your recipients and your network in the customer's account, right? And they also try to monetize by uh, selling the accounts uh, and PII over the darknet. I mean, it's like a, a number of areas number which of areas. are growing. And you also mentioned a few other, let's say, topics like uh, OTP. I think that's a... Uh, a whole another discussion about OTPs or not. I think that's another big topic about friction, no friction. Is OTP the right thing? A lot of people discuss we should go away from OTP, but still a lot of companies using it. So there's a whole ecosystem of topics which makes it challenging for any financial institution to run as fast as the fraudsters do this. I think that's the I think that's an important point. We are having a lot of constraints internally with resources, priorities, and regulations, but the fraudsters don't have this. And uh, that's why it's always, or in many areas, always like a step ahead. Maybe a question to John, do you have anything to add from your side regarding the uh, challenges for DFIs from, from your experience? Yeah, very, very consistent with what Anand shared. It's, I'd say we're seeing identical patterns for sure. Cool. And you already mentioned before that a lot of banks, FIs, have the challenge on one side being secure and being ahead of the fraudster, but on the other side, the expectation of customers increasing all the time. And John made a statement before, changing your bank, your bank account, your, your trading account, your saving accounts or whatnot, it's not that difficult. So if a customer has a bad experience or something doesn't go as expected, they might just jumping to another provider. And there are many providers on the market today. So Anand, from, from your side, how are you prioritizing this in, in your fraud strategy? Because that's also often a challenge. You have a fraud team or a risk team with certain goals, but then you have another team who's in charge for onboarding many customers, having many transactions and really looking more on the business side. So how are you going to combine this internally? Yeah, some of the customer expectations that are evolving is one is perceived security, right? Now, SMS uh, OTP may not be, it's obsolete in terms of uh, ATO checks and things like that. But whenever there is a change in our behavior from the customer, like a device or a different country, and you kind of notify and uh, you kind of intersect them. So that actually enables trust for the FI with the customer. So perceived security is something which is critical and it has to be done with very, very minimal friction as well, right? Second thing we notice is that most of our customers are on mobile apps, right? They have very, very less use of uh, the desktop or the other platforms. And that also leads to a very, very uh, low attention uh, span time, right? And that means your solution to interject a customer has to be very, very uh, seamless. Most of the time, it has to be behind the scenes, right? 
We also see uh, Gen Z uh, actually are more open to sharing their PII information than uh, the earlier generations, right? Uh, such as giving permissions to locations, biometrics, and things like that. So what what this also means is this is also available for fraudsters now, right? Some of this location data, some of this biometrics data is also open to fraudsters. So any solution that is coming together has to uh, take that into account, right? And as I was saying earlier, right, any challenge you put in the face of the customer, you immediately see like a 10, 15% drop-offs and uh, eventually not being able to access your account when and uh, at what time you want, right? Leads to a, a, a lot of customer loss. I mean, Anant is really presenting this from an FI point of view, which is fantastic. But also, John, you talked to a lot of companies and you have been in this area for a while. So do you see it's similar that potentially FIs are more looking into how to really create this kind of frictionless experience and maybe even lowering some barriers to have this good experience? Or do you think it's the other way around right now? They're really trying to protect themselves. Yeah, it's a great question. I'll kind of focus on the second point first, and that is most users want the same kind of frictionless experience that they have in other industries like social media or, mm -hmm. you know, logging into their email. They don't really, they, they assume security. They assume banks and FIs are doing everything within their power to protect them and protect their accounts. So, you know, it's, they want their cake and they want to eat it too, right? I also wanted to share this data insights survey result they did last year where the most important uh, consumer criteria for online banking was ease of use and uh, behind the scenes fraud prevention and security. So that is exactly what we're hearing from these banks. They're, they're looking for almost, let's call them passive signals that are uh, you know behind the scenes that consumers don't have to interact with. I've actually heard a statistic quite a bit higher than a nonce where uh, almost a third of login attempts were abandoned when uh, faced with a challenge by consumers. Now, some of those were probably fraudsters as well, but a large percentage of those are just good customers. And that's, a, that's an extremely high insult rate when you think about it. And again, you know, people, as Anand said on his last side, the Gen Zs are more than happy to pivot and move their money with a couple of clicks if, if they don't like the way they're being treated. We had a customer that shared with us that they were using over a dozen different risk tools and had essentially over-engineered their authentication process. And just they were seeing extremely high abandonment rates due to this friction. They're in the process of whittling that down to a handful of core signals. But um, that's just another example where every day we're talking to FIs that are are facing this challenge. And it's it's a uh, it's a puzzle. It's not an easy one, for sure. Maybe that's the friction in the uh, fraud team, having so much data. I mean, we talk about the friction on the consumer side, but we know a lot of providers, a lot of solutions provide a ton of data. And combining this data and making sense out of the data is not always easy. And especially if you need to adjust certain thresholds or uh, pivoting your machine learning model, to use the data in the right way. So that's maybe an internal friction for the fraud teams dealing with all this uh, data which coming in. But that's maybe a good point for Anand 
uh, to maybe get, get your perspective on this and also trying to be very operational, Zanan, from your side. When you're looking about ATOs today, so how would you give an advice to someone looking into this webinar right now? How could someone understand how big the issue is for, for their company? Is there any kind of KPI or any kind of advice which you could give to, to measure or to somehow classify how, how big the topic is. At the end, you need to have budget. You might need to go to your boss or someone who's holding the budget to get approval of any kind of resources or technology. But often they want to understand how big is the problem. Sure. So I, a couple of things right, to consider. One is companies need to find the right balance between perceived security and uh, frictionless customer experience and uh, uh, mostly behind the scenes kind of passive signals to do your ATO. So that is very, very important uh, to find the right balance. Else uh, you may over-engineer and you may lose your customers or you may actually uh, loosen up and have a lot of fraud. Second thing is, I think uh, in terms of uh, how uh, in the past we have actually kind of managed these challenges, just having one method or one uh, solution uh, is not really enough, right? Popular being device, uh, fingerprinting. It has its own challenges, right? Apple and Google are tightening up. They're sharing less and less of device. Device ID is not universal as well. So a successful ATO strategy has to actually include other methods such as biometrics and location, right? And be passive as much as uh, possible, right? And very, very critical because uh, as John pointed out, right, Gen Z will switch the moment you put a friction in the path uh, that they don't like. So minimizing your false positives uh, in this area and uh, they being able to access their account is very, very critical else you will see a much, much higher customer loss, right? Uh, I think finding the balance and all your checks are almost passive behind the scenes without even customer knowing, you know, you're doing a, a check uh, on the screen there uh, is super critical for a successful ATU strategy. So maybe again, back to John, maybe trying to understand, do you know any kind of pitfalls that company maybe stepping in or maybe again, swinging to right, left or right on, on a specific topic, but also I would like to maybe add a second point, uh, John. I mean, you have been in this topic for a long time and we have on the right-hand side interesting comment or question from Ben. And he makes a statement that we mentioned before, OTPs, we know is a big topic and maybe not that a golden bullet, but you also mentioned the MFA, so the multi-factor authentication. Maybe once we're done with this part, maybe you can also give one or two comments from your perspective to this question. I think that would be good. Yeah. First of all, to your first question about the pitfalls, I think I talked a little bit about that earlier and in, in sharing that anecdote from one customer where they were way too far on the strict side. They were too tight and their false positives went through the roof. Their abandonment rate went through the roof. Conversely, if you're too lenient and you just want to be you know, the best experience without having the right safeguards in, in place, you're going to see account takeovers and, and other related fraud spike. 
So it's a perpetual balancing act as the landscape evolves. You know, banks will set thresholds, the fraudsters will test for those thresholds, and they'll stay under the radar. They're using automa- automation. You know, we've heard a lot about generative AI and some of the challenges that's facing or creating for things like biometrics. So to your point, there's really, there's, there's really no silver bullet. There's, you have to use a combination or layers in order to stay one step ahead of, of these guys. And, you know, there's a lot of job security <laughs> in, a non, in a non-space because of it. Going to the question, I think, yeah, there, there'll always be a human element to it. Uh, you know, we have our own opinion. I'll talk in a moment about how we see the, the landscape and how our customers addressing it. But with things like social engineering scams, it's a tricky one, right? Because, you know, Anand talked about it earlier where, you know, I'm the fraudster is now directing me on my device to do something that I shouldn't be doing. So there's, there's different types of behavioral uh, signals that you can use, a bank can use to understand like, gosh, John's never really made that many transactions in that period of time or move that large sum of money into a new account, et cetera. But short of that, it's a little bit tricky because it is the, it is the good user and it, they're using a trusted device from their location. So yeah, it's an ongoing battle and you know we have to just continue to evolve and innovate and deliver new solutions. I think now we, we build a good foundation about what is ATO about, what are the challenges. But when looking back at our title, we actually, actually talk about device recognition and the next level. But before we coming to the next stage or what we could add, I think it's also important maybe to reflect a lot of companies today will use one way or different ways of recognizing a device. Uh, many companies will use any kind of device fingerprint technology or maybe even using IP data. And I would like to also, John, before you going into what is next, what is really the next level, maybe giving a bit more perspective from your side, how this industry moved. I mean, you have a great background. You are part of the story at the end with your former company, but also understanding why is a new generation needed? So what is maybe the challenge today? Why you actually, with Ecognia, build another layer to make device recognition even better? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what's, what's happened, and Anand actually sort of mentioned this a moment ago, at, you know, Apple and, and Google, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're making updates to their privacy policies, operating systems and browsers. And that's deprecated the effectiveness of what I'll call legacy solutions, like device fingerprinting solutions. So there's there's a strong need in the market based on the conversations we have every day for stronger device fingerprinting, for example. Um, fraudsters are defeating these defenses by wiping a device or even factory resetting a device so they appear as a new device. So if you're using things like negative device watch lists, they're ineffective because that's a new device. It's not on your watch list. So by combining what we call location fingerprinting with device fingerprinting, FIs can get a much stronger and more resilient binding of identities to devices. Turns out that 
the places that we visit have unique signal environments associated with them. And they identify us. And we do this, by the way, pseudo-anonymously. We, we anonymize all this location data. So we don't actually know where you are. We just know that that is either a trusted location or a location that you frequent based on the signals that we use. I'll give you an example. When Incogni detects fraudulent behavior from a location, we can block all subsequent activity from that one location. So if a fraudster, like let's say they've set up some a fraud farm and they've got 50 devices running in a single location, we can detect all the transactions that are originating from that one known bad location without having to wait for each individual device to exhibit bad behavior. So essentially, think of it as a location watch list. Obviously, we have to be very good understanding that the device, the data coming from that device can be trusted. So, you know, we we do a very, very thorough job of detecting things like app tampering, not just root and jailbreak, but other sophisticated instrumentation techniques that, that the fraudsters are employing to hide or obfuscate their location. We do this at an apartment level precision. I like I like to say this is not your grandfather's geolocation solution. If you use like what I'll call legacy geolocation signals like IP address and GPS, which are easily spoofable, you'll have to block an entire building. So let's say I'm operating those 50 devices from one apartment in a tower. Using IP address for geolocation or GPS, I would have to block that entire building. Whereas the way we create these little location fingerprints at an apartment level, we can just block that signal environment, if you will, within within that greater building, because those are all potential customers too of, of ours. The inverse is also true for good users. Anand also mentioned this, they get new devices every couple of years and they have multiple devices. So you need technology that can quickly recognize that those are the same users and location's a great way to do that. We have a capability we call trusted location that learns very quickly your behavior, your location behavior, because you go home, you go to your office or you go to other nearby locations. Even when you travel, we can do things like velocity checks and reasonable travel. So you can remove friction, the amount of friction or completely remove friction, depends on your appetite for risk when you see a new device from a known good location. So those are those are some of the things that our customers are taking advantage of to balance out the fraud versus friction challenge. Based on your information, John, we got in a couple of questions and I would like to pick the question from Sandra. Maybe needs a bit more perspective about the uh, apartment example, because mm -hmm. at the end, maybe you can give some examples, uh, John, about the kind of data or the sure. data points which you actually include in defining this apartment or a trusted location. I think that's, again, like the big difference, how this kind of old technology was defining a location. It's a really good question. So I guess the best way to explain it is, you know, we all have one of these with us 24-7. It's never more than two feet away, right? So we will have a, a small SDK on that device. And that SDK essentially taps into the lo different location signals that that device has access to. So if you think about it right now, where each of us are sitting that are on this call, we're probably connected to a Wi-Fi network. We are, if you did a scan of available Wi-Fi networks in this area, you would see 
probably six or seven where I'm sitting anyway, in different relative signal strengths. There's um, GPS coordinates associated with this location. If I move to the other side of my apartment or house, those signal strengths might vary. So that, as you can imagine, creates an extremely precise location footprint for that location, that single location. We do that with every location that a user visits and other users visit. We can also borrow from our consortium of over 200 million devices. So if we've already learned or mapped that location, we take advantage of that and say, yeah, we know that that's, that's a trusted location for that device as well. The other thing that approach makes extremely difficult is spoofing that location. Because if you can imagine to replicate the signal environment where I'm sitting or where you're sitting right now, would be nearly impossible. You'd have to get into my house and you'd have to connect to my network and all those other things. So that's how we do it. We can take advantage of legacy technology like IP as well as GPS. We use that sparingly, but because they're so coarse grain and high level, they're not good for this, this precise approach, which is what we've been discussing. Thanks, John, for giving this insights. But I would like to, to take one more question on this topic. Uh, again, maybe the, a lot of people ask about this because Anand also mentioned we have a lot of Apple and Android devices and privacy is more or less important for each company. So what is happening if I disable any kind of location information on my phone or for the app which I'm using? Can you still get something out of this or you're applying completely? Uh, no, this is all opt-in. So we're GDPR compliant, uh, we're CCPA compliant. That's part of the process. So I'd say, you know, not sharing your location for trust reasons or fraud prevention reasons could be interpreted as a signal in and of itself. Most people trust their bank and want their bank to keep them secure, as we've been discussing throughout this webinar. So we see a very high opt-in rate. But uh, what we would do is essentially use the last known information. We still have the device intelligence that we capture as well. So if, if, if it is a clean device that's not sharing location for whatever reason at that moment, again, it's up to the, the risk appetite of the FI. They might elect to let them browse in their account, but not perform any transactions, or they might challenge them. It, it, it really varies. And now the question to Anand. I mean, now we have seen uh, an interesting perspective from John about another layer to enhance the device recognition. But uh, Anand, how useful is this for you today? Or do you have any experience using such technology? Or what do you think is the, the best use case to get started and, uh, and learning about how location behavior could be uh, leveraged in the best way? I think uh, location is becoming more and more critical, right? As part of your ATO stack. Right. As I said, device has its own challenges, location has its own challenges, but together they actually play a very, very significant role and they can be actually transforming uh, for your KPIs for your organization. Right. I had the opportunity actually to work and build this in the past, right, on the uh, some kind of a location fingerprinting. And that has actually helped uh, clear a lot of uh, false positives that we had. And also on the prevention side, a lot of uh, fraud loss as well. And because it's it's very unique, right? If you just take pattern of uh, human behavior, you know, the way they move around and uh, it kind of creates its own unique sauce and recipe there. 
and uh, it becomes very difficult for someone to actually uh, spoof or uh, uh, replicate that kind of a behavior. So it becomes a very, very uh, unique sauce or recipe for us to verify and say, hey, this is uh, John there who's actually doing this transaction, right? Or uh, it's not John there who's not doing, somebody else doing the transaction. Uh, it's a very, very important tool. I think one other KPI we manage is uh, reducing costs. So this actually plays a very, because it's not like the fraud team has all the money in the world to go go after just uh, building solutions, but we also have to do it in a very cost-effective way. So uh, it also helps in reducing our costs a lot. And I think location is here to stay in the future. And I think more and more companies would uh, add it in their ATO strategy. Good points. But also you, you mentioned something about costs. And we know a lot of companies, especially the bigger ones, or the, let's say the tech companies, always make the decision to buy, do I build this in-house or do I trust a third party and, and you know implementing the tech faster? Do you have any experience, Anand, from your side, looking at this topic, would it even make sense to build this in-house or would you just say not doing this at all? Or did you ever try to build something like this just to, to outsmart any third party who was doing this? So this, um, my experience back then, I think we didn't have much third party. It was very new in the industry, right? So we, we have been depending upon company to company. It's always buy versus build. You know, what makes the solution depending upon the flexibility that the company has or the, the product gives with a third party or uh, what you want. And also the cost of maintenance, right? Becomes very, very key. Important key in the buy versus build. But uh, back then, uh, I hope Incognia was there. So we could have actually just gone ahead and integrated, but uh, we had to build. And uh, building always comes with its own challenges, own pain points, right? Some of the things are technically is not very easy, right? Uh, for example, location spoofing, so common on Android, right? Uh, if you are in the food delivery business, something that's a big scam in the food delivery business, right? So it becomes very, very critical. Perfect. But I would, I would go, like to go back, Anand, to one topic which uh, John mentioned before was related to the question. So how would you see if Ronald logs into the service but not sharing the location at all? Would you see this as more risky or how would you look about this? Because I have seen personally, I'm using often a VPN and I see certain companies or certain websites don't allow me even to access the website anymore. They just tell me uh, something and I just need to disable my VPN to actually access this website. Would you go the same way or would you maybe just look about, okay, he's logging in from a um, location which you don't know and then you might disable certain functionalities or would you really block customers straight away from even logging in? Yeah. So uh, as I said earlier, I think somebody asked as well, right? Just one particular method or one particular signal is not the silver bullet here, right? So again, it depends. Donald, when you're logging in, uh, we see other signals too, right? Behind the scenes, one is device, trusted device. There's also other methods like mobile authentication happening, right? Depending upon the device you're logging in from. And uh, again, uh, it's a factor of all these signals they come in and how we score you. And uh, depending upon that, 
we let you log in or we don't so there is no one silver bullet on hey if you have enabled uh, if you have not enabled location we actually prevent you from logging in perfect we coming close to the hour just want to have enough time also wrapping this up but maybe back to john being in the industry for a while what is maybe the next level i mean now we talk about location behavior is there any kind which technology which could come next or how I mean, on your roadmap internally, I guess you'll have a product roadmap where we're going to enhance the services every day. Is there something significant which you maybe can share or providing an outlook how location even becomes more important? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we recently introduced a web solution. We started as a native mobile app solution hmm. for Android and iOS devices. And we recently introduced a web solution, obviously completely different set of signals that are available on the web hmm. relative uh, to location versus mobile. But I would say new channels being, you know, omni-channel, wherever there's digital, customers are looking for solutions. Another example of that is living room devices, like a smart TV. We have customers who have apps uh, that run on those and they have different types of policies. I'll call, let's call them policies. Uh, that they want to enforce around things like account sharing. And so being able to develop solutions for those types of devices, obviously today we work on, you know, iPads, iPhones, et cetera, Chromebooks. But when, when it comes to these set-top devices, that's a whole new thing. I think then the whole I, IoT movement, which is, you know, we, we don't talk a lot about anymore, but it's, it's just kind of happening in real time and we're accepting it. You can unlock your car, you know, with your phone now. There's all kinds of things that you can start your car with your phone that are being enabled. So I, I think there's a large movement where that's advancing where location behavior and device intelligence will, will continue to be in demand to solve problems. We, at, to Anand's earlier point, we did start in, let's call them more traditional location-based industries like food delivery. Some of our clients are the largest food delivery companies in the world, the largest marketplaces in the world. And they're using us at onboarding, for instance, where you know they want to block people from opening a bunch of fake accounts, right? Or they want to enforce policies around account sharing. Like if I'm a driver and I've gone through an IDV process, I am not allowed to share my account with my friend who's not covered by my insurance. I'm sure there's other issues too. So he can or she can make some money on the side. So we, the problem we solve for them is detecting those types of things like account sharing or a lot of fake accounts being set up. Things like promotion abuse is very common. This is, this is also true in other industries. But again, if you're just wiping your device, you can keep getting discounts on meals and things like that and other types of promotional offers. So we kind of started there and solved those problems for the customers. And, you know, like good entrepreneurs, we've pivoted into these other industries, including financial services, where as Anand points out, you know, location behavior is here to stay. It's relatively new on the forefront, at least the way we do it. I mean, everyone knows IP address and they know GPS, but in terms of creating these signal environments and trusted locations and what we call suspicious locations, which is the inverse, is relatively new. But I think it's gaining momentum because of all of the issues that we've been talking about today, where it's it's harder to profile devices. 
And these signals, there's not a lot of new signals available every day. So location is clearly becoming more and more important to FIs as well. But I also liked the approach which you brought up, John, not looking only about what is fraud, but also potentially looking at different revenue streams. Maybe that's a question to announce. So if you are a bank today or fintech today, and you actually have this location data, I've seen a lot of interesting use cases in the past already, where someone tried to make location-based offers from partners. I mean, if you have an app and you go to a certain location in the city, you might can even push certain offers or promotions to your customers because you know where they are, or at least the area. Uh, is this something where you get internally a request from your team members and maybe different business units? How can you use location data for other services? Or would you see location data as the most powerful one for stopping and detecting fraud? Yeah, I think we have actually had similar ideas in the past uh, at a different employer, right? Uh, which is kind of omni-channel. Uh, a lot of it is retail-based. And uh, actually getting this location data and triggering offers has been one of the key strategies to actually uh, you know, up the revenue or, or uh, build uh, alternate uh, revenue streams uh, for the company. So that's actually one interesting angle apart from ETO as well on the location. Yeah. And uh, it's been actually successful. I mean, that's also, again, maybe just like a, a moonshot idea for the audience. It's not just to stop fraud, but once you have the location data, you can also potentially use this for other services with your uh, business units internally. We got an, uh, an interesting question from one of the uh, users who actually is asking about the SDK and how it's implemented into the banking system. I think that's an easy, easy answer from, uh, from John about this. It's not really implementing the SDK into the banking solution, but maybe John has some good words to explain this easy. Yes. Uh, so the way it works is, first of all, the SDK is very lightweight it, because it's doing something very specific. You know, we're not boiling the ocean, right? We're primarily looking at the uh, device signals and, and the location signals. So think about maybe 500 kilobytes for Android and a megabyte and a half, perhaps, for iOS. So very lightweight. And then you compile that in your mobile app. We do something similar on the web. With, with some JavaScript, but just sticking with the mobile app, you would compile that in the mobile app. And then as the next release, you know, whatever, whatever your sprints look like, you have a new mobile app released every couple of weeks, we'll be inside that, if you will. But the integration itself is, is fairly painless, takes a couple of days, requires uh, a mobile developer, and that's about it. We also, I, sh I should add, we also offer a proof of value where we, we don't do any decisioning, but we, we just collect data and we compare the data that we collect over a 30-day period with what the customer sees on their side. And that's where we show the lift in either reducing false positives or increasing the fraud capture rate, as an example. And the second question is things just following on this topic. I mean, once you have the implementation done, potentially you get data or a lot of data. Maybe you can give some perspective, John, is this like a, a good or bad about the location? Do you provide like 10 signals, 100 signals, 1,000 signals? And yeah. I've been using different technology myself. And sometimes it's not easy to really understand what is the right signal. 
Do I need to use like 50 out of the 200 or just using three? Maybe you can give in a nutshell a best practice how companies getting started using all these location signals. Yeah, so we, we communicate via an API. So uh, at, at different points of, of the customer journey. So if it's at login, for instance, like we've been talking about account takeovers, what we would do is, is deliver a risk assessment. And that's going to be either high risk or low risk or unknown risk if we haven't captured any information. But if it's, if it's high risk or low risk or unknown risk, you're going to get reason codes as well as English based reason. So it'll say, it'll tell you why it's high risk. Like this is an unknown device or a known risky location. You know, in other words, where fraud, we were talking about location watch lists before, let's say a negative location watch list. If that device has been associated or that location, forget about the device. We don't even really need to know the device. We just know that that location's not trusted or it's suspicious. So we'll deliver that. This is also presented in a dashboard. So a fraud analyst can go into the dashboard and do further root cause analysis they want and export data, et cetera. A lot of our larger enterprise customers will import our data into their risk engines. That's very common and will score independently. Typically, we're at the top of that waterfall, that scoring waterfall, because the location signal strength is so strong, especially if we're saying this is good, this is trusted, or this is bad. We know this is not a trusted location. Perfect. Thanks, John. We're getting close to the hour, so I would like to take the last chance for Anand and also for John to give any kind of final comments or final thoughts from uh, about location behavior. Anand, any final statement before we closing this for today? Well, I said earlier, location is here to stay. Right? It adds to the stack. I think without it, it's going to be really, really hard for any institution to actually serve a successful and safe experience, especially for an FI. Thanks, Anand. John, any? Yeah, I would just close with, you know, our location behavior is, is unique to us. They're like snowflakes, if you will. We did a, a back test with one set of uh, customers and it was like, you know, one in 17 million where it's that unique, right? Each of our behavior, they don't, even people from the same household have different location behavior. The, they may live together, but then they go, and they, they, they go to other locations, whether that be for work or other things in their free time. So it's, it's an extremely strong and individualistic signal for these trust and risk use cases. Hey, David here again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Trust and Safety Mavericks. Subscribe to our show to be notified about every new episode. While you're at it, follow our CEO, Andre Faraz, on LinkedIn where he regularly posts insightful thought leadership.